So I'll begin by saying today is an interesting day. First of all, it's in the Christian tradition, it's Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. They consider it the birth of the church. It's also Memorial Day. And I'll just on that for a moment, I'll pause and say, you know, a group like this, in so many times and places in history, it wouldn't have been allowed for people to just meet like this. Uh, and even even in many parts of the world today, it would, you know, it would be politically unwise or even dangerous or illegal for people to meet like this. Um, and, you know, it's so easy for us to take our rights for granted. But, you know, starting with the Revolutionary War, people died so that we could have these rights, you know. And so I just want a presence, you know, what a blessing it is that we... We can just feel so safe coming to a place like this. Mostly, though, what I'm going to talk about tonight is memory. Because of Memorial Day, I figured I'd talk about memory. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny. I think in this society, a lot of people would say, I don't have a good memory. But also, if you got people talking about parts of their life when, that they were fond of, they'd say, I, oh, I have good memories of that time. And that's an interesting juxtaposition. I don't have a good memory, but I have good memories. You know? And obviously those are about two different things, but, but what actually is going on there, and what does that say about the nature of memory? You know, that I could have a bad memory, but good memories. You know? So... I'll say that, so far as I understand, neurobiology has identified three types of long-term memory systems that we have. The first is called semantic memory. That's just the memory of verbal information. What is your address? What's the capital of France? What does the Pythagorean theorem say? You know, just, just information that you can spit out in words. You know, academia pumps us full of semantic memories, you know. Um, and I'll say also that um, we live in a very head-centered society that, that wildly overvalues the, the, the power of word and the value of words. Um, and so I think a lot of importance is attached to things around the semantic memory. But in the great scheme of things, it's really the least important of our three memory systems. Um, when people are talking about their semantic memory, they use the term, my memory. You know, I have a good memory, I have a bad memory, talking about their verbal recall for, for factual information. So that's memory system number one. Memory system number two, the episodic memory, stored in a different place in the brain, is the memory of narrative events, the memory of stories. And so this is not only things that happened in our own life, you know, that time in the third grade when such and such happened, or that day when such and such happened, you know. But it's also how we remember plots of movies, plots of novels, you know. Mythology often presents information in episodic form. Um, it's about our stories. And stories are so important. Stories are part of what it is to be human, you know. Um, that we connect with each other by sharing stories, you know, 
Like if someone came in and said, I'm going to share a bunch of factual information, but I'm not going to tell you any stories about myself, like there'd be something off-putting about that. Like, you know, we'd feel like we weren't really going to get to know that person, you know. Um, Emotional intimacy is really about trusting people with our deepest stories, you know. Um, And so the episodic memory is much I think it's much more closely aligned with the limbic system, with the emotional center of the brain. And it, it's much more about how we connect, you know, and, and what, you know, it, it plays a much bigger role in what it is to be human. Um, I'll say with respect to our stories, there are, I'll, I'll distinguish sort of two broad uh, stages of growth. You know, and often when we're younger, maybe in childhood, there's just the, the, the task of owning our story, figuring out our story, owning our story, getting validation for our story. You know, part of, part of what it means to own my story is I tell it to trusted other people and they can reflect it and validate it, you know. Um, and that's, that's an essential step. But later on, at a, at a more mature level, Part of growth is around hanging a question mark over our stories, you know. Is the way I'm telling my story limiting me in some way, you know? Is the way I have the story about myself too small for me, you know? Am I more powerful, wiser than my story, than than my story is allowing myself to be, you know? And, and I, think, I think almost for all of us, the answer to that last question is yes. I think we're all a lot wiser and more powerful than, than we tell ourselves, you know. So that's memory system number two, the episodic memory. Now, the really interesting one is procedural memory. Procedural memory, first of all, it includes everything around muscle memory, so how to ride a bike, how to throw a frisbee, how to eat with utensils, how to cut a piece of paper with scissors, you know, all those things that we, we do. We do many of these things automatically. We're not even aware that we're doing it, and we're doing it, you know. Um, walking is a procedural memory. We're born not knowing how to walk. We learn it, and then we remember it. And in fact, we, we're proficient at it because we practice that memory every day, you know. Um, so a few things to notice about, about procedural memory. First of all, um, we, it doesn't depend on conscious control. We, a lot of it is stuff that we just do on automatic pilot once we learn it. Um, also consider this as a thought experiment. Suppose you had to describe purely in words, no diagrams, purely in words, how to throw a frisbee, like say in a in an email or something, it would be almost an impossible task, you know, like it would be mind-bogglingly difficult and 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 pretty much useless, you know, because of course, how do any of us learn to throw a frisbee? Someone says they have our frisbee and they say do this, you know, and we imitate them. So there's a a gigantic component of imitation. You know, monkey see, monkey do 
kind of stuff with procedural memory. So procedural memory is interesting because it, it certainly includes muscle memory of all kinds of tasks, but it's also what tone of voice, what body posture, what facial expression do I adopt when I am surprised, when I am angry, when I'm trying to impress people, when I'm, you know, I'm lying, but I don't want people to know I'm lying, like, you know, or a thousand other emotional situations. What, what is the being that I have in that emotional situation? All of those are procedural memories. And I think we've all had moments when we're in a strange situation, dealing with something we hadn't done before, and suddenly find ourselves acting in ways and saying things, and we're, we're like, where did that come from, you know? These are procedural memories that are within us. Um, and so a lot of it is, a lot of what is now called procedural memory um, <clears throat> takes over what was earlier called the unconscious. In, you know, earlier writers like Freud and Jung. Um, Ultimately, procedural memories are about how we do this whole thing of how do you be human? What does it mean to, to go through the world as a human, you know? And, of course, this, you know, if we look at the three, which one has to do with spirituality the most? Well, procedural memory, certainly, you know, spirituality is not about facts that we know. It... it not a whole lot about the stories we tell ourselves. It's a lot about how do I live in the world? How do I actually behave and show up in the world? You know? And so, how do we work with, with spiritual, with um, procedural memory? And so, I think there are three important considerations for working with spiritual memory. The first is the power of attention. And, and particular mindfulness. You know, and mindfulness itself is a procedural memory that we can practice and get good at, you know. Um, you know, like eating, for example, something I can do on automatic pilot, but I can be mindful about eating, you know, walking, tying my shoes, anything like that. You know, I can bring mindfulness to these simple tasks. The more subtly I, I hone my skill of mindfulness, I can start to be mindfulness about mindful about what kind of, what, what tone of voice, what body posture am I bringing into this situation? You know, what, what manner of being do I have? Um, insofar as we're practicing something like meditation or inner silencing, we're also able to create a kind of pause, a, a space between stimulus and response, you know, so that rather than stimulus and then immediately, you know, whatever crazy behavior comes out of me, you know, stimulus, and I can think for a second, you know, wait, how do I want to respond to that, you know? And so the work of meditation is, is very helpful in that respect. So attention is very powerful. Related to that, the second way that we work with, with procedural memory has to do with practice. And if you think of a professional athlete, you know, anyone in a martial art tradition, um, 
you know, a musician, how do they hone their craft? They practice every day, you know, over and over the, the, the movements, the techniques, the skills. And it's the very profound yet unsexy truth of life that what, what d- most deeply impacts our life is what we do every single day without fail, you know? And so it really brings, it brings a, you know, it presents us with a question, you know, how willing are you to commit to your own self-care? You know, and it, it's funny when people talk about their, their, say, a meditation practice, they're starting or something like that, they'll say, you know, well, I do it, I do it when I feel like it, I do it when I remember it, remember to do it, you know, this sort of thing. And, and just to comment on that level of commitment, I want you to consider, for example, what that would look like as commitment in a romantic relationship. You know, like, I'm faithful to you when I feel like it, I'm faithful to you when I remember, like, that's not commitment, you know? And, you know, it, it's a really radical thing to say, but commitment is commitment. You know, whatever the standards of commitment are, whatever, whatever we imagine the standards of commitment are in a, in a powerful, successful love relationship, we should be holding those same standards of commitment with respect to ourselves, you know? And so it's a question, you know, how are you, do you want a committed relationship with yourself? Or are you just going to be casual with yourself? You know, <laughs> the the third way to work with uh, procedural memory, going back to this monkey see monkey do thing, um, I think it is easy to underestimate how much different environments and different conversations and different relationships have the potential to change us. And I know I've had the experience in my life, and I'm, I'm sure all of you have had moments like this, where I'll be in one particular conversation or situation, I'll find myself agreeing things or even saying things that I would want to deny in another conversation, you know? That, and that, does, that, ha- that happened more when I was younger, it happens less now, but, you know, this way that different situations and different different people, different energies, draw different parts out of us, you know? And how intentional are we about choosing the kinds of situations we put ourselves in? Choosing, you know, the kinds of relationships that we put ourselves in? Choosing the kind of conversations we pursue, you know? How, you know, how intentional are we about creating the conditions that draw out the best in us? You know, so that's an important thing to consider. So those are the three kinds of memory that that neurobiologists recommend. But I want to also talk about what I'll call a more archetypal kind of memory. And in order to talk about this, I'm going to I'm going to recite a passage from T.S. Eliot. This is on the quote sheet from the four quartet. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, there the dance is, but neither a rest nor movement, 
and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither motion from nor toward, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. All I can say is there we have been, but I cannot say where, nor can I say for how long, for that is to place it in time. So in that passage, he's talking about this this part of us that knows the eternal. And I want to back up and, and gloss that word for a second, because in, in the secular society, we, we don't really understand the word eternal. We think eternal means a lot of time or time going on forever. And eternity is something quite different from time. Um, time is a field of experience where everything is in flow. Everything is in becoming. Eternity is a field of experience where everything is in being. Time is a lot about scarcity. Eternity is a lot about abundance. Um, One of the ways I visualize this is if you visualize time as a horizontal axis, you know, past and future. Eternity is like a vertical axis that cuts across it. You know, we could even say eternity in the direction of imminence, eternity in the direction of transcendence. And the, the point where they cross is the present moment. And so the present moment, you could say, you know, we access eternity by, as it were, going deep inside the present moment. You know? Um, And it's a kind of archetypal remembering. It it almost gets down to the the etymological root of the word remember. At, At an etymological root, the word remember is an antonym of the word dismember, you know? And there's a way that that modern life fragments us, as it were, dismembers us, you know? And I find my ego living in a way that is not necessarily aligned with my deepest resonances, you know? Or, um, you know, my ego, you know, I'm pursuing goals that are pulling me away from self-care or away from deeper alignment with myself. Uh, remembering is is almost about putting ourselves back together, you know, undoing the fragmenting process, bringing ourselves more into alignment with the the deeper resonances of our being. Um, sort of a, a an archetypal remembering of who we really are, uh, a who we really are that 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 has roots outside of the realm of time. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. Getting all kinds of great looks from Virginia. I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Thank you, Rick. So the quote sheet actually begins with another passage of the four quartets that I'll just read. 
time past and time future, both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage we did not take toward the doors we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. What I like about that is it really highlights, this is going back to episodic memory, when we think about the story of our life, part of the story of our life is what happened, but part, sometimes the most significant things is the thing that almost happened but didn't. Like the really good thing that almost happened but didn't. The really bad thing that almost happened but didn't. The path that I might have taken but didn't, you know. Like that's all part of our story also, you know. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, what that says about the nature of our stories. Finally, a quote from T.S. Eliot, also from the Four Quartets. This is the use of memory for liberation. Very simple. From Montaigne, the great essayist, nothing fixes a thing so intensely as the mem- in the memory as the wish to forget it. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Henri Gide said, nothing prevents happiness like the memory of happiness. Marcel Proust, who thought a lot about memory, said, we are able to find everything in our memory, which is like a dispensary or a chemical laboratory in which chance steers our hands sometimes to a soothing drug and sometimes to a dangerous poison. You know? And can we be more conscious about how we draw on our memory? You know? Solom Ash said, not the power to remember, but very, it's very opposite. The power to forget is a necessary condition of our existence. Mark Van Doren said, memory performs the impossible for humans, holds together the past and future, gives continuity and dignity to human life. The the poet Muriel Russiger said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. Cesare Pavaz said, we do not remember days, we remember moments. Poet Charles Bukowski said, can you remember who you were before the word world told you who you should be? Flannery O'Connor said, in the long run, a people is known not by its statements or statistics, but by the stories it tells. And, and any one of us individually are known by the stories we tell. You know. Gabriel Garcia Marquez says, He was still too young to know that the heart's memory eliminates the bad and magnifies the good, and thanks to this artifice, we managed to endure the burdens of the past. Anthony DeMello said, A master was once unmoved by the complaints of his disciples that though they listened with pleasure to his parables and stories, they were also frustrated, for they longed for something deeper. To all their objections, he simply would imply simply would reply, you have to understand, my friends, the shortest distance between a human being and truth is a story. 
Byron Katie said, reality is always kinder than the stories we tell about it. Mm-hmm. Sherwood Smith said, memory warps time as it does the sights and sounds and smells of reality. For what shapes it is emotion, which, which can twist what seems clear just as the surface of a pond seems to bend the stick thrust into the water. Walter Isaacson said, one way to remember who you are is to remember who your heroes are. I like that one. Christina Ebersole said, when barriers are put in front of you, it's God or the universe asking you to remember who you are and reminding you not to let yourself be defined by things outside of you. S.J. Watson said, we're constantly changing facts, rewriting history to make things easier to make them fit into our preferred version of events. We do it automatically. We invent memories without thinking. We tell ourselves something hap- If we tell ourselves something happened often enough, we start to believe it, and then we can actually remember it. And Wayne Muller said, the heart of most spiritual practice is simply this. Remember who you are. Remember what you love. Remember what is sacred. Remember what is true. Remember that you will die and that this day is a gift. Remember how you wish to live. 